1: Welcome
0: to the London Review Bookshop.
1: <laughs> As I was coming here, I was thinking of, and I'm sure you all know but Philip Larkin's wonderful answer to an interviewer who asked him why he didn't do poetry readings, and he said he wasn't prepared to go about the country pretending to be himself. <laughs> um, it's one thing to go about pretending to be John Vanville. Uh, to pretend to be Benjamin Black is uh, a double whammy. Um, I haven't appeared in public as Benjamin Black before and I will read very briefly indeed because uh, I always hold to Sheamus wife Mary said that uh, Flanner Brown famously said that there's no such thing as a large whiskey she says there's no such thing as a short reading <laughs> so uh, I will do I would confound them both and do a very short reading, indeed. But uh, I suppose I should explain a little bit about (laughs) Benjamin Black. He's the uh, the product of an unholy alliance, I suppose, between Georges Simenon and uh, a television script, which I had done uh, around 2003. I had been commissioned by... (laughs) another Unholy Alliance, uh, Irish television and Australian television to write a mini-series, um, which I couldn't resist because you know, they were going to pay me. Uh, I did the script and of course the script never got made. It turned out that the television people didn't have the money to make it. And I hate to waste anything, so there was a script sitting there looking at me. And then I began to read Georges Siminon, and I'd never read him before. Um, not the very great books, which I don't like very much, but what he called his hard novels, his Romandu. And uh, I was bowled over by the kind of effects that he achieved with very minimal material. And I thought I would try to do this because, um, you know... <laughs> English reviewers always talk about, uh, you know, that I use much too many words, certainly too many adjectives. And I thought i will try to do it uh, minimally, but I would have to become somebody else in order to do this. Also, I would have to let readers know, you know, I'd have to let John Boundable readers know that this wasn't a trick, this wasn't a... a, uh, elaborate postmodernist joke that this was, as they say in computerese, this is WYSIWYG, this is what you see is what you get. Uh, this was straightforward. People still don't believe it. Uh, my friend Richard Ford was having dinner in Dublin uh, shortly after the first Benjamin Black book was published, um, Christine Falls. And he said, that the person sitting beside him said, what, what do you think Bangle up to with this Benjamin Black thing? And Richard said, well, I think he wanted to do something different. And it's, you know, it's very simple and straightforward. And I said, no, no, no. No, he's up to something. He's really up to something here. So I really wasn't. I mean, it was just, uh, I, I just wanted to, to do something different. Uh, and everybody thinks that this was some kind of repost because um, the first Christine Falls book came out shortly after I won the Man Booker Prize. Now everybody thinks this was... Something to do with the Man Booker Prize. It wasn't, of course. I'd written the book uh, before. The Man Booker Prize was even a gleam in my eye. Uh, In fact, my agent was able to present my publisher with the uh, the finished Christine Falls, the first Benjamin Black book, on the day that that my book, the Sea, John Van Bun's book, the Sea, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. I would like to have been a fly on the wall that day to see my publisher's expression. So that was where Benjamin came from. It's really, it's quite a simple thing. It's a kind of playful thing. Uh, Benjamin now does my day job for me. I worked in journalism for 35 years in order to feed my family and myself. Um, And now Benjamin is doing it for me. Uh, I wish he was doing it better, but uh, in other words, I wish he was making more money. But uh, that's what it's about, in a way. But also, you know, I I like the notion of being a, a technician. I like making a, a piece of work, a piece of crafted work. And this is what these books are. They're crafted. This one uh, began life as a, a serial for the New York Times. And they phoned me up one day and said, would you do a serial for us? And I, of course I thought immediately that this would be, that I'd be writing it by the week, like Trollope and Dickens and so on, and that I'd be white-knuckled on a Friday evening thinking, my God, you know, I haven't done my 1,500 words. But it being the New York Times, the whole thing had to be finished before I gave it to them. And you would be amazed at the things that you cannot say in the New York Times. You can't say schmuck, for instance. Schmuck apparently is... in Yiddish is a very bad word I hadn't known this but also if you mention that a character is black you can't then say again that the character is black you have you know you, you can't say it twice you can't say for instance this guy okay, this black man came along and then you you can't say you know the black man said this is absolutely verboten. which you know and there are all these ridiculous rules. I mean I can see the point of not using four letter words since it is a uh, a family newspaper, but their rules are extraordinarily uh, arcane. So it was technically it was a, uh, an interesting thing to do, to write a book that would be okay, acceptable in a family newspaper. And also it was interesting to do it was a 15-part serial, uh, and each chapter had to be 1500 words. And I spent so much time getting it to exactly 1,500 words. I would add a couple of words, take away a couple of words to get it to 1,500. Then I would send it to the New York Times and they would cut it and chop it around and it wouldn't come out as 1,500 words. So what I'll do is I'll just read the first chapter it really won't take more than a few minutes just to give you a sense of what it sounds like in my head or at least in in his head. Um, it's a, and since it's the first chapter, there's no point in my explaining what it's about. You know, you have to buy the book and find out. And the, researcher, the researcher was a very tall, very thin young man with a head too small for his frame and an Adam's apple the size of a golf ball. He wore rimless spectacles, the lenses of which were almost invisible, the shine of the glass giving extra luster to his large, round, slightly bulging black eyes. A spiral blonde hair sprouted from his chin, and his brow, high and domed, was pitted with acne scars. His hands were slender and pearly. Oh, sorry, his hands were slender and pearly, pale, with long, tapering fingers—a girl's hands, or at least the hands a girl should have. Even though he was sitting down, the crotch of his baggy jeans sagged halfway to his knees. His non-too-clean T-shirt bore the legend "Life sucks, and then you die." He looked about seventeen, but must be, John Glass guessed, in his late twenties at least. With that long neck and little head and those big, shiny eyes, he bore a strong resemblance to one of the more exotic rodents. Though for a moment, Glass, though for the moment, Glass could not think which one. His name was Dylan Riley. Of course, Glass thought he would be a Dylan. So, Riley said, you're married to Big Bill's daughter. He was lounging in a black leather swivel chair in Glass's borrowed office on the north-facing side of Mulholland Tower. Behind him, through a wall of plate glass, grey Manhattan sulked steamily under a drifting pall of April rain. Does that seem funny to you, Glass inquired. He had an instinctive dislike of people who wore T-shirts with smart things written on them. Dylan Riley snickered, "'Not funny, no surprising. "'I wouldn't have picked you as one of Big Bill's people.' "'Glass decided to let that go. "'He had begun to breathe heavily through his nostrils, "'his his always a warning sign. "'Mr Mulholland,' Glass said heavily, "'is eager that I have all the facts "'and that I have them the right way round.' "'Riley smiled his goofy smile "'and swivelled the chair first to one side "'and then the other, nodding happily.' All the facts, he said. Sure. He seemed to be enjoying himself. Yes, Glass said with stony emphasis, all the facts. That's why I'm hiring you. In one corner of the office there was a big square metal desk, and Glass went now and sat down carefully behind it. He felt less panic-stricken sitting down. The office was on the 39th floor. It was absurd to be expected to conduct business, to do anything at such a height. On his first day there, he had edged up to the plate glass wall and peered down to see, a couple of floors below, fluffy white clouds that looked like soft icebergs sailing sedately across a submerged city. Now he put his hands flat on the desk before him, as if it were a raft he was trying to hold steady. He very much needed a cigarette. Dylan Riley had turned the chair round to face the desk. Glass was sure the young man could sense how dizzy and sick he felt perched up here in this crystal and steel area. Anyway, Glass said, moving his right hand in a wide arc across the desktop, as if to sweep the subject aside, and the gesture made him think of footage of Richard Nixon sweating on the evening news all those years ago, insisting he was not a crook. The studios were so harshly lit in those days of paranoia and recrimination that they made pretty well everyone look like a villain in an old Eastman color movie. I should tell you, Glass said, that Mr Mulholland will give you no assistance, and I don't want you to approach him. Don't call, don't write, understand? Riley bit his lower lip, which made him look all the more like, what was it, a squirrel? No. Close, but no. You haven't told him, Riley said, have you, about me, I mean. Glass ignored that. I'm not asking you to be a muckraker, he said. I don't expect Mr Mulholland to have guilty secrets. He was an undercover agent. But he's not a crook, in case you think he is. No, Riley said, he's your father-in-law. Glass was breathing heavily again. That's something I'd like you to forget about, he said, when you come to do your researches. He sat back on his chair and studied the young man. How will you go about it, researching, I mean? O'Reilly laced his long pale fingers over his concave stomach, and this time rocked himself gently backwards and forwards in the swivel chair, making the ball and socket mechanism underneath the seat squeal tinily, eek, ik. Well, Riley said, let's say I go way beyond Wikipedia. But you'll use computers and so on, glass, did not even possess a mobile phone. Oh, yes, computers, Riley said, making his big eyes bigger still, mocking the older man. All sorts of wizard gadgets, don't you know? Glass wondered if that was supposed to be a British accent. Did Riley think he was English? Well, let him. Glass, I should tell you, was Irish. What a surprise. He imagined lighting up the match flaring, the lovely tang of sulphur, and then the harsh smoke searing his throat. I want to ask you something, Riley said, thrusting his pinhead forward on its tall stalk of neck. Why did you agree to it? To what? To write Big Bill's biography. I don't think that's any of your business, Glass, said sharply. He looked out at the misty rain. He had moved permanently from Dublin to New York six months previously. He had an apartment on Central Park West and a house in Long Island, or at least his wife had. But he'd still not got used... To what he thought of still as a New York jeer. The fellow on the street corner selling you a hot dog would say, Thanks, Bud, and make it sound merrily derisive. How did they keep it going? This endless, amused, argumentative, squaring up to each other and everyone else. Tell me, he said, what do you know about Mr. Mulholland? For free? Riley grinned again, then leaned back and looked at the ceiling, fingering the tuft of hair on his chin. William, Big Bell Mulhond, South Boston Irish, second generation. The father ran off when wee Willie was a kid. Mother took in laundry, scrubbed floors. In school, William got straight A's, impressed the priests, was an altar boy, the usual. Tough, though. Any pedophile cleric coming near Big Bill Mulholland would likely have lost his balls. Put himself through Boston College, engineering. College was recruited into the CIA, became a working operative of late 40s, Electronic surveillance was his specialty, Korea, Latin America, Europe, Vietnam. Then he had a run-in with James Jesus Angleton over Angleton's obsessive distrust of the French. A big bill was posted to the company's Paris bureau at the time. In those days, one did not incur the displeasure. Again, that hopeless attempt at the British accent of James Jesus without getting cut off the knees, which is what would have happened to Bill Mulholland if he hadn't got out before Angleton could give him the shove, or worse, and that was the late 60s. He pushed himself up out of the chair, unwinding himself like a faker's rope, and shambled to the glass wall and stood looking out, his hands thrust into the back pockets of his jeans. He went on. After he left the company, Big Bill got into the then-blossoming communications business, where he put his training as a spook to good use, when he set up Mulholland Cable and right away began to make shitloads of money. It wasn't until 20 years later that he had to bring in his protege, Charlie Varraker, to save the firm from going bust. Charlie Varraker, as you can tell, is going to be a very important uh, name in this little book. He paused and without turning said, you know about Big Bill's matrimonial adventures, I guess. In 1949, he married the world's most famous redhead, Vanessa Lane, Hollywood actress, if that's the word. And in 1949, the marriage was duly dissolved. Now he grinned over his shoulder at glass. Ain't love just screwy? He went back to contemplating the misted city and was silent for a moment, thinking, You know, he said, he's such a CIA cliché. I wonder if the CIA didn't invent him. Look at his next marriage in '58. Clare Thorpington Elliot, or the Boston Elliots, That was some step up the social ladder, for Billy the Kid from Brewster Street. He had, as you will know, one child only, a daughter, Louise. By the second, Mrs. Mulholland, Ms. Clare, as this grand lady was called, died in a hunting accident, walking horse, broken neck, in April 1961. On the eve, as bloody-minded fate would have it, of the invasion of the Playas Girón, otherwise known as the Bay of Pigs. A venture in which Big Bill was sunk up to his neck, the grieving widower returned from the shores of Florida to find the Elliots already moving his things, including his two-year-old daughter, out of the grand old family mansion in Back Bay. He turned and walked back and slumped down in the chair and again turned his eyes to the ceiling. Next thing he said, Big Bill was married a third time to Nancy Harrison, writer, journalist, and Martha Gellhorn lookalike. And living with her on a fine estate in county somewhere on the west coast of Ireland, not an Oscar statuettes not an Oscar statuettes throw from the home of his old friend and drinking buddy, John Houston. Grand days by all accounts, but bound to end like all such. Blonde Nancy couldn't take the endless reign of the low-browed natives. And packed up a Remington and high-tailed it, Personia Climes Ibiza, Clifford Irving, Orson Welles, all that. He stopped and lowered his glossy gaze from the ceiling and fixed on Glass. You want more? I got more. And I haven't even looked into the crystal ball of my laptop yet. What did you do, Glass said. Learn this stuff off before you came up here? A sharp something came into the young man's look, a resentful edge. I have a photographic memory, he said. Useful in your trade, Glass said. "Yeah." He was, Glass saw, sulking. His professional honour had been questioned. It was good to know where he was vulnerable. Glass rose, a finger braced against the desktop for balance, and launched himself cautiously out into the room. At each step he took, he felt he was about to fall over and had the impression that he was yawing sideways irresistibly in the direction of the glass wall and the gulp-inducing nothingness beyond. Would he ever become accustomed to this cloud-capped tower? I can see," he said. "I picked the right person, because what I want is detail—the kind of thing I'm not going to have time to find for myself, or the inclination, frankly." No," Reilly said from the leather depths of his chair, still sounding surly "Detail was never your strong point, was it?" What struck Glass was not so much the implied insult as the tense in which it was couched. Was this how everyone would see it—that by agreeing to write his father-in-law's biography? He had renounced his calling as a journalist? If so, they would be wrong, though once again it was a matter of tense, for he had already given up journalism before ever Big Bill had approached him with an offer it would have been foolish to refuse. His reports in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, on the massacre in Tiananmen Square, on the Rwanda genocide, on the Intifada, on that bloody Saturday afternoon in Shabinitsa, Not so much reports as extended and passionately fashioned Jeremiah's. There would be no more of them. Something had ceased in him. A Light had been extinguished. He did not know why. It was simply that. He had burned out. An old story. He was a walking cliché. I want you to write this thing, son, Big Bill had said to him, laying a hand on his shoulder, not only because I trust you, but because others do too. I don't want a hagiography. I don't merit one, I'm no saint. What I want is the truth. And Glass had thought, ah, the truth. It's not going to be easy for you, he said now to the young man lounging in the shell-shaped chair. How is that? I don't want Mr Mulholland to come to hear of you and what you're doing. You understand? He turned too quickly, making his head spin, and gave Dylan Riley what he hoped was a hard look. But Riley was gazing at the scenery again, gnawing the nail of his left little finger and might not have been listening. But that's my job,' Riley said, "'to be discreet. "'Anyway, you'd be surprised how much information, detail, as you say, "'is on record, if you know where to look for it.'" Das suddenly wanted to be rid of the fellow. "'Have you a standard contract?' he asked brusquely. "'A contract? I don't do contracts.' Riley smiled slyly. "'I trust you.' "'Oh, yes, I didn't think you'd trust anyone, given the nature of your work.' Riley stood off from the chair and adjusted the crotch of his sagging jeans with scooping gestures of both hands. He really was an unappetizing person. The nature of my work, he said, I'm a researcher, Mr. Glass, that's all. Yes, but you find things out and surely sometimes the things you find out are not to the taste of your employers. Never mind the people they are having researched. Riley gave him a long, piercing look, putting his head on one side and narrowing his eyes. You said Big Bill had no guilty secrets. I said, I expect none. I'm here to tell you everybody has secrets, Riley said, mostly guilty ones. Glass turned towards the door, drawing the young man with him. You get to work straight away, he said in a statement, not a question. When can I expect to hear from you? I've got to get my head round this, get organized, decide priorities. Then we'll talk again. By now Glass had the door open. The much-used air in the corridor smelled faintly of burned rubber. "'I've got to get my head around you, too,' Riley said, with a suddenly bitter laugh. "'I used to read you, you know, in The Guardian and Rolling Stone, The New York Review. "'And now you're writing Big Bill Mulholland's life story.' He inflated his cheeks and released the air in them with a tiny plosive sound. "'Wow,' he said, and turned away. And Glass shut the door and walked back to his desk. and When he reached it, as if at a signal, the telephone rang. And this a security, Mr. Glass, your wife is here. For a moment, Glass said nothing. He touched, he touched the chair Dylan Riley had sat in, and again it made its tiny protest. The young man had left a definite odor on the air, a greyish, rank spore. A lemur. That was the creature Dylan Riley resembled. Yes, of course, a lemur. And the uh, the zoologists among you will tell me, of course, that a lemur is not a rodent, and it isn't. Uh, Glass's girlfriend later on informs him that uh, whatever a lemur might be it's not a rodent. Um, it's a strange book. I've, I haven't read from it before. Um, and I, d- I didn't remember most of what I was reading, as you can probably tell. Um, It's very strange, I don't know who Benjamin Black is, he's uh... i I really don't know, it's a a very strange, very strange sensation. Anyway, that's my reading, and if anybody would like to ask a question or shout abuse or... Um, The fascination is, because you have two names and two identities, do you have two bank accounts? two checkbooks, two tax returns, or does Ireland still exempt you from taxes? No, I, can, I can see where this question is coming from in <laughs> these days. Um, no, I wish Benjamin had a bank account. Uh, no, there aren't two people, it's it's odd. I wish I could say, it would be much more interesting if I could say there were two people. This, a, this creature at my shoulder. But I do find, now and then when John Banville is writing, John Banville finds writing very difficult indeed. Sometimes, when Old Banville at three o'clock in the afternoon gets tired, and Benjamin steps forward and says, "I can do this for you. You know, this, this we will do this quickly. We'll get this done and out of the way." And that has to be resisted forcibly. Uh, it's very interesting. It's because, of course, you know, no writer wants to write. Uh, we all want to be away doing something else. We all want to be the shit in the shuttered chateau you know, with the booze and the girls and all that stuff. Um, having written, we all want, we, want, we all want to have written, to have the books published and the money made, all that stuff. But unfortunately, we have to do it. Um, so there is a temptation. Benjamin does tempt me and say, you know, you know, it doesn't have to be so difficult. I can do it for you. And I do find now and then when I read, you know, I'm halfway through a John Van Vogt book at the moment, and when I I revised it over the last three or four weeks, and I would find patches in it, soggy, dreadful patches, that Benjamin had stepped forward and said, I'll do that, we'll we'll speed it up here. And that has to be excised. And equally, um, every now and then when I'm being Benjamin Black, Banville will step forward and say, That's an interesting sentence. Let's 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 keep that going for a while. Uh and Benjamin has to say, No, get away, we have to do this. So it's 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 interesting. I'm not sure. I mean, I may be destroying myself for all I know. I mean Banville may, you know, be uh killing himself as an artist. I don't know. But it's something I had to do. It was thrilling in a way to be, you know, when I did the first Bench and Black book, it would have been 2004, so I was approaching 60, and it was exciting to do something different, to discover I could do something different. I was driving my car one day, and I phoned my wife and said, I know what I'll do, I'll turn that, you know, that, that television script, I'll turn that into a novel. And it seemed uh, a wonderful kind of jeu d'esprit, you know, it was like, yeah, this this is easy. And it was easy, I went to stay with a friend of mine in Italy and she gave me room and I started writing at 9 o'clock one Monday morning and I didn't know if I could do it Uh, but by lunchtime I had written 1500 words Banville was aghast at this. Uh, If Banville had written you know 150 words by lunchtime he would feel very lucky. But I've always been two people. I mean I always earned my living as a journalist. I mean I've worked as a journalist for 35 years. Not writing but editing. I was sub-editor, uh, which an old editor of mine defined as some editor, somebody who changes other people's words and goes home in the dark. Uh, and I loved that. I loved, I loved uh, fiddling with words that weren't mine. And in a way, I suppose, it's just struck me just as I say it, I suppose in a way what I'm doing in these books is I'm fiddling with words that aren't mine. Um, and that's an interesting thing to do. It's interesting to become somebody else in 160's. Sorry, a long answer to a succinct question.
0: You've answered one of my questions. Work in progress includes a new banville. Are we likely, on the other hand, to see is quirk likely to reappear or even glass again?
1: Oh, I don't know about glass. Um, you know, one of the Interesting things about doing this kind of book is to work within a cliched form you know the thriller the crime novel the noir noir fiction it's you have to work in cliches you can't do otherwise and the the challenge is to find new and interesting ways of doing cliches um, Yes, I will do another certainly another quirk book I'm very interested in. You see, I, uh, John was not really interested in characters or plot or any of that stuff. Um, I forget, recently, John Updike talking about William Maxwell's saying to him, um, what was it, plot schmott, you know, you know? We don't care about plots. We don't care about characters. We just want to get something written. It's a kind of uh, unregulated poetry that we do. Um,
3: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
1: I found the pleasure of plot and of character and of narrative and of moving a thing forward by, you know, it was wonderful doing this to try to find a A cliffhanger at the end of every fifteen hundred words. It was, you know, it was a kind of childish pleasure, which is, of course, what we get from reading this kind of fiction. Um, But I got very interested in uh, Quirk's daughter Phoebe, who, as the books, the two books have gone on, she's become more and more dark and more and more strange to me, like. Uh, agent says that I'm in love with her, and maybe I am in a kind of way. Um, she's a strange, dark, um, and uh, damaged person. So I will certainly write about her. And the next book is going to start that because <laughs> for those of you who haven't read it, Quirk in the first book was a, a, a great Irish drinker from the 1950s, um, and the second book he'd given up drink. I decided I'd, you know, I'd make it interesting by. I take him off the booze, and at the end of it, he went back on the drink again. And when the next book opens, he's in—he's essentially drying out, uh, and he's in very bad straits indeed. And something dreadful happens in his daughter Phoebe's life, when she comes to look for his help, which is a way of getting him back into it. I mean, it's very difficult to do the, these kind of books—the quirk books, for instance—that you know. In Ireland in the 1950s, a murder every three years would be, you know, front page news. So, I, you know, it, it's, it's hard to have people being killed all over the place. Um, but then most of you didn't live in Ireland in the 1950s, and you're lucky, I can tell you. Um, so I don't have to worry too much about that. But yes, there will be more quirk. There will be more quirk books. I, I like... I think it must be that it it, it uses up the side of John Banville that was never interested in plot and character and narrative, um, and also making crafted pieces of work. I mean, it's this is a great pleasure, you know. When I I did a lot of reviewing in the nineteen nineties, and for the last fifteen years or so, I've done a lot of reviewing, and I I got more pleasure from doing reviewing than I got from anything because I hate what I write, but absolutely loathes what he's done. It's all so awful. There's a wonderful cartoon by Gary Larson, a great genius. I hope you all know Gary Larson's cartoons. But it's it's a two-part one. And the top half is a flower bed. And all flowers are absolutely perfect. And It says, you know, how people see flowers. And in the bottom half, they're all snaggled toothed and cross-eyed and everything else. It says, how flowers see themselves. And, you know, I see my work as, when I read it, well, I used to read reviews a long time ago, I don't anymore. But when I did, if I read a good review, a favorable review of one of my books, I'd say, ah, what does he know, what a fool, you know. <laughs> uh, whereas the bad reviewers is yes, yes, you've got it. Um, so, you know, it's a reason for not reading reviews anymore. But we, you know, we hate what we do, whereas I, I'm... Quite proud of these books, in the sense of being craftsmen. You know, it's it's artists don't art uses up craft. The craft comes first, and then it gets used up and gets burned up like you know a firework. The thing is all that stuff, and there's this poor little thing at the you know on the on the ground that's been used up. Um, in a way, f- for the artist, that's the, the craft is burned up. Whereas in these books the craft is on the surface, and it's it's interesting.
0: Can I come back to John Benville? <laughs> Not Benjamin Black. Now I, I read Christine Faust and I liked it very very much, but what uh, I admired about John Benville, that it was going beyond the novelist in a certain way. It was you did a lot of writing, um, novels and trilogies, and also about Prague pictures. But I always thought there was something, the form was more important than the content. All the content had to follow the uh, the form. And uh, I wonder whether you were not going beyond the novel. Some critics call it metafiction or something. And um, whether you try to achieve something different from what everybody writes, get Booker Prize like this. And... Um,
1: yeah, I, I understand your question. Oh, yes. I understand what you're yes. saying. It's hard to ask questions yeah. on occasions like this. Um, yes, I mean John Van Lund tries to go beyond the novel. I you know, terms like metafiction, of course, critics have to find terms. But I simply you know when I sit down to write, I I just write what I can. I don't come to it with a program. Um and this is always a problem. I notice this when I do readings and reading tours. I can see people, readers, really enthusiastic, loving readers, and there are a lot of them around. And they come to me to have their book signed or whatever. I can see the disappointment dawning in their eyes <laughs> that I'm just me. And I want to say to them, you know, look, the person who wrote the book that you loved is not here. It's not me. When I stand up from the desk that I was writing at, I cease to be the person that wrote that book. I, have, I frequently, the next day I would read what I wrote the previous day, and I have no memory of it, or very little. It's a very hazy conception of what I did the day before. Because the person sitting at the desk is like us when we're asleep, that we're dreaming. The waking person is an almost entirely different being to the sleeping person who dreamt these extraordinary Phantasms—these, these these, these amazing dreams that we have. As Nietzsche says, every man is an artist when he's asleep. Um, And I used to think when I was young that I was in control of everything I did, but I realized later on, I've got a little bit of wisdom, I realized it, it is a kind of dreaming, so I don't know for the most part what I'm doing. I know beforehand what I want to do, I know after how much I hate what I did, but while I'm doing it, um, there's just the doing and it's like, as I say being a sleeper so these Benjamin Black is a relaxation from that I know what I'm doing as Benjamin Black I know that this is a particular kind of craft, crafted piece of work that I'm doing and as I say, I, I, I'm quite proud of it I'm, John worries about it you know. but I, um, you know, I I remember many, many years ago when I was very young I shared a, a, a flat in Dublin with a friend of mine who was a very cynical, very funny character. And he said to me, you know, because I was trying to write in those days, my late teens. He said to me, you know, Barenville, you'll end up writing editorials for the Irish press. The Irish press was a kind of a, an awful hack newspaper you know, in those days. And about 10 years later, I found myself writing an editorial for the Irish press. Uh, But I still remember that editorial I wrote for the Irish Press. It was about the death of an actor and it was a good piece of writing. I sat down and in about 10-15 minutes I dashed off a good piece of writing. You know, this can't be, it's all very well, you see the point I'm making, it's all very well to talk about art and pushing beyond the novel and all these things, but there is a great deal to be said for doing a good piece of decent writing. You know that it's just that's honest and maybe not the best that one can do, maybe not the greatest that one can do, but it's still a good, decent piece of work. That's a there's a lot to be said for that. Um, do you, um, as a presumably a sort of independent third party, know whether Benjamin Black has a different readership from John Banville, or does your publisher know? I, I don't know because I I don't ask. I mean, asking about sales and so on is a bit like asking a bank manager about the state of your bank balance. It's always a shock and a disappointment. Um, so I don't know. I presume um, he has. But, you know, my publishers, when I gave them Christine Falls, the first mention of Black Book, most of them said, sort of shamefaced, oh, we don't see much difference between this and your John Banville books. I mean, I see, you know a vast difference. But who am I to say? I don't know. I mean, I know that I write completely differently as John Banville. I mean, I write... It's a process of... As you see, when I become inarticulate, Um, it's a process of sinking into oneself, sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into a state of concentration that uh, can take hours before you you write anything. I mean yesterday I was writing I I was in the middle of my, as I said I'm in the middle of a John Van book and I was writing a uh, I come to a stage where it just came to a stop and I thought I don't know what to do, I don't know how to go forward with this. You know I'm here at, and the wonderful thing about these computers now is you can count, I'm at 44,065 words I don't know how to get to the 66, I just do not know what to do. And I sat for an hour, an hour and a half in a chair in my room where I write, and I thought, this is, you know, I'm in despair, I don't know how to do this. I just do not know what to do next. And then gradually, it was quite interesting, the, the desperate artistic mind Seeks out the bits that it can work with. There were two or three things so that well, I can move forward with this. And then I wrote a paragraph before I finished for the day. And that carried me over. Carried me over into today. I'm not here weeping and screaming. Um, you see, as I say, I become inarticulate when I t- try to talk about what it's like to make a work of art because I don't know how to do it. Every morning I do not know how to do it. Uh, and every artist has this, this feeling that you just, you, you think, I cannot do this. I, I have no idea how I did it yesterday, probably what I did yesterday is rubbish. Uh, when I read tomorrow what I did today, if I do something today, I would think it rubbish as well. And we, You know, Kafka said a wonderful thing, he said, I do not, I do not write as I think, I do not think as I should, everything goes on in deepest darkness. And this is true. I mean, I hesitate to talk like this because it makes one seem this this grand tragic figure. It's really just work, you know. You're sitting there picking your nose, thinking, "I don't know how to go on with this." It's not a a a, a, a grand tragic thing, but yet at the end of it, one produces something that that speaks to people in an extraordinary way. I mean, I always tell this these two little stories that. Uh, Maybe this is a way to, to end. That, as I say, I don't read my reviews, but the best review I've ever had was in 1989 when one of my books was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So I had a brief three minutes of notoriety. Uh, and I was running for the train one morning in where we live in, in Dublin, and there was a workman going past in his bike. And he obviously had recognized me from the papers or whatever. And he veered towards me. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to be attacked. And just before he reached me, he said, great fucking book. (laughs) And I thought, I will never, ever have a review as good as that again. Never. You know, That was the best review I've ever had. Who could hope for better than that? And my wife, Janet, was in uh, Marks & Spencers uh, a while after The the Sea came out. And the woman at the checkout counter looked at her credit card and said, um, are you related to John Batman? And she said, tell him the sea is the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And she said, tell him that came from a checkout woman at Marks and Spencer's. And, you know, isn't that wonderful? I mean, you know, I don't care about the the reviewers and the academics and the biographers. That's who one writes for in the end. One hopes that no matter how complicated a sentence, no matter how hard one works at making something complicated and rich that anybody can read it this is this is the this is the great return that one gets for (laughs) spending one's days sitting in a room telling these ridiculous stories
0: John I think there are one or two more questions if you don't mind okay thanks
1: that was my big finale (laughs) what what do I do now
2: Sorry if this is the encore. That's right. um, uh, firstly, to answer the question, of the gentleman behind me, in terms of is it a different readership for Benjamin Black than than it is for John Banville? Well, if I'm an example, then I started reading your Benjamin Black novels and I've read the three of them, and now I'm a John Banville reader as well. So hopefully, there's a little bit of crossover being, sort of gone. occurring there. Uh, and I would also sort of um, agree with the lady who talked about form beyond content, because to me. Of the books of yours that I've read so far, it's not about anything except writing. I think in the Benjamin Black books, crime is irrelevant. I've read quite a lot of crime books. I don't think the crime is particularly relevant in your books. I just think the writing is absolutely beautiful. And and you talked a bit about works of art, because actually, bizarrely, what your writing reminds me of, if anything, is photographs like those of Bill Brandt. There's, There's just images that crop up all the time... Uh, and it's absolutely superb. So sorry to sort of flatter you and all that kind of stuff, but, but I mean that's what it means to me. Is, this is the kind of, the this kind of question I really love. You can pay me later, but but, in, but it's in relation to that I wanted to ask you that I was reading quite listening quite closely when you read that first chapter from the Lima, and in the American edition, which is the one I've got, um, there are a few differences, actually. In are there? In, yeah, there are, and I was just one. Well, this is, you sort of half answered my question, which is that. Who made those changes? And if not you, does that diminish what you've done? I mean, they're not not huge changes. They don't affect the plot. But there are a few words here, the odd nuance there, that's different in the American edition and I don't just mean spelling than in 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 the English one. And I wonder if if that matters.
1: Um, No, I... uh, I understand the question you're asking. And I can only answer it by saying that, you know, when you've done something, when it's finished, it becomes really have no interest to you. It's gone. It's, this is one of the things that makes it very difficult doing interviews, for instance, when a book is published, because that book is something you, you, you've almost forgotten it. You have to crank yourself up to remember the doing of it. You know, it's an odd phenomenon. It's odd to me that the only person in the world who cannot read my books is me. Everybody else, all those other billions of people, they can all read, and I hope they will, but I can't read them, uh, and I'm the only... So I, I don't know what's in them. I find them strange and inimical to me. I find them... I'm deeply uncomfortable with them. I don't think it's purely to do with the fact that it's something I wrote in the past. It's that... I've never got to the bottom of this, why it is that that one hates one's work so deeply and one is so embarrassed by uh, past work because it's you know it's not what one wanted it to be it's so far below what one set out to write that it's a hideous compromise. You've, one day you've said to yourself I just to I'm going to stop this and give it to the publisher let it be published Uh, And when, you know, in the days when I did read reviews, I would say to myself, this hasn't gone far enough. You know, the most devastating review hadn't gone far enough because there's no more uh, critical, critic of my work than myself. So I know this is, again, a roundabout way of answering a relatively simple question. In a curious way, I don't care, you know, I, I, I... it's now yours it's there's you know the for the writer there are two books there's a book you're working on' there's a book that has been written and once it's finished once that critical balance has been crossed then it becomes public property and it's for you to make and remake and rewrite i mean and I really do this is where I cozy up to my audience but it is for you to to write the book again I mean I have I'm no Democrat, but in this area, I am. I think that that once the book is published, it becomes everybody's. People come and tell me things about my books that I knew nothing of. The most uh, remarkable instance of that, which I always cite, is that in my book, The Untouchable, uh, uh, published in the 90s, which is based on the life of Anthony Blunt. um, uh, In a way, a lot of the book is about you know, the life of the mind is against the life of, in the world, you know, which is more important, the heart or the head. Uh, and at the end of it, almost the last sentence is that he's about to shoot himself and he says, you know, which is better, through the head or through the heart? A lot of people said to me how wonderfully I had encapsulated all the book into this one." I had no idea of that. I had no idea of doing that. Uh, I simply was thinking about, you know, which would be quicker. So that in a way, there is a there is a level at which Michel Foucault and Beckett and so on write. It doesn't matter who speaks. You know, it's what is done that's of significance. It, I, I have no. I have no importance anymore. And this is why, as I was saying earlier, that I can see readers saying <laughs> to me, you know, "Look at me," and saying, "God, he's very small, and he's very old, and he's very old." Um, they want, you know, I, and I can understand this myself. I mean, I've. I longed to meet Samuel Beckett. I was going to meet him in nineteen eighty nine. Uh, he died a few months before I was going to meet him. And of course I would love to have shaken his hand, but I know that I would have said, Oh, Samuel Beckett hmm. <laughs> What what you know, Samuel Beckett is not Samuel Beckett. There is no there is no person. There's no you know, I'm sitting here it's a complete fraud. Two frauds. Um do you know what I mean? Uh, again, this is elaborate
0: answer to a simple question anyway for those book collectors amongst you there's a very rare proof copy of the untouchable just to john's left there going at very reasonable price tonight um should we take one more question from someone do you think on balance that literary prizes are a good thing or a bad thing
1: that's a good question um Writers love to sneer at the Man Booker Prize. Um, we love to sneer at the Nobel Prize. Uh, but there's no doubt that the Man Booker Prize sells books. It gets people to buy books. It maybe gets some people to read books, even, you know, not just leave it on the coffee table. Uh, it keeps the notion that fiction is an important thing or at least a significant thing to entirely different terms. Um, So yes, and certainly for someone like me uh, to speak in entirely personal terms, the Book of House is extremely important. I would have sold three or four thousand copies of The Sea. It would have been respectfully reviewed. The woman in Marks and Spencers would have said it's a wonderful book, but you know, having Got the man Broker prize. It sold, you know, I don't know how many tens of thousands of copies. That's a good thing. It's a good thing for me. Whether it's a good thing in the fullness of time, I don't know. Um, But anything that keeps the notion that the the crafted work of art, the thing that's been worked on over and over for days, months, weeks, years, that this is worth having. that seems to me good you know it's 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 good that we should because one of the things about the work of artists that it's it's one of the very few moral objects that we have in the world the artist is not a moral um, uh, sensibility I mean the artist doesn't set out with anything other than the notion of getting the thing done you know I have no opinions about anything I don't care about anything except getting the thing done but the work of art when it's put, put into the world is a moral object because, simply for the fact that it is the best, it is the absolute best that one particular person could do, without any compromise. You know, there is no real work of art. There is no compromise. You know, you, Benjamin Black may step forward and say to John Vanbrugh, "You know, let it go." John Vanbrugh says, "No, I cannot let it go. It must be right. It must be as near to right as I can get it." So anything that recognises this is worth doing. It's a good thing. Um,
0: it was just that I, I, I was wondering, I haven't read any of your Benjamin Black novels, but I wondered if you, you paint quite a black-and-white picture of John Banville and Benjamin Black, but I wonder if you felt that any of your John Banville novels lived somewhere in between, just because I mean, of the ones I've read, I can think of The Untouchable, which feels like quite a yeah. craft novel, yeah. and even The Sea... I mean, I liked your uh, word, sunk. It doesn't feel quite as sunk <laughs> a novel as as some of the other ones I've I've read of yours. So I wondered whether it was a, a case of, you know, maybe there's more of a spectrum there than, than the picture you were painting.
1: No, you, you, no, it's a good question. You're absolutely right. There is no, it is not black and white. <laughs> it's not black and bamboo. Uh It can't be done that way. There is seepage uh, between the two. Of course there is. The untouchable certainly is, is I think a Benjamin Black book avant les lettres. Um, in all of us, in the greatest of artists, there lurks a Vulgarian, in the best sense of the word, you know, somebody who wants to to speak to a large to the Vulgate, you know, not, not Vulgate's wrong, but to the you know, to, to a large group of people. And that's a good thing. The most precious art is always the least interesting. You know, in its time it seems wonderful. Um, but art has to have a, a little touch of the vulgar too, a little bit of that grime that the world gives. And yes, there is a, uh, there is a leakage between, <laughs> seepage, leakage, these are awful words, you know. <laughs> but there is, yes, between the two. Of course, and there, there would have to be. But I hope also that there's a certain amount of sewage between Banville and Black as well.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I just want to say I I went on holiday in the last week of August um, and took three books with me to read. One was by John D. MacDonald um, who's pretty much forgotten these days. A book from the 50s. Another one was by Richard Stark and uh, I think he's a writer you like very much and the other one was yours the publisher kindly gave me an advance coffee uh, and it was the greatest sort of reading experience I'd had in, in you know, the short time of a week they, they were really all fantastic things. Do, do you actually feel any sense of um, inheritance of, of um, American crime writers when you sorry this wasn't meant to be a question it was meant to
1: no, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, uh, I mean, Richard Stark. I don't know if you've read Richard Stark. Um, he's curiously uh, neglected now. A wonderful writer. He's Don Westlake, who wrote the script for The Grifters, that, mo- that great movie and so on. Um, but as Richard Stark, he wrote a series of novels in the early 60s based on the character of Parker. Uh, and Mike Quirk, who has no first name, is a kind of an homage to... Uh, and Stark's uh, character is no first name. Uh, I really would urge Richard Stark on you. They've been reissued recently, for all things, by the University of Chicago Press. What a place! What a f- place for a noir writer to be to be reissued. But they're lovely editions. I really recommend them. He wrote a lot of these in the early '60s. He wrote. He's still writing. He's about 85. He looks about looks a lot younger than I do. Uh, he's still writing. Wonderful writing extraordinarily um, how would I describe Richard Stark Parker is the ultimate professional criminal but all the Parker books start with something has gone wrong, a bank robbery has gone wrong I mean the very first one, The Hunter, is that his, his partner in crime and his wife are both connived to shoot him and run away with the money and he's after them and getting them, and they're completely without sentimentality. And One of the great dangers of crime writing is that it it falls over into this awful sentimentality. You know, Al Pacino, you know, he's a really tough guy but he has to go and see his estranged wife and his kid at the weekend. You know, that awful kind of squashy sentimental stuff that, that, that crime writing falls into. Parker and Richard Stark does none of that. Parker is the ultimate uh, professional criminal and they're beautifully written they're written with such precision and such crisp style I really recommend them Richard Stark, get The Hunter which is the first book uh, and then go through them I mean there's about 18, 20 of them by now and they are just superb, Ross MacDonald um, I don't know I've I, I'll go back and read Ross McDonald And Benjamin Black, of course, is good. <laughs> but yes, Richard Stark, I do urge him on you. Superb, superb, superb writer.
0: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop
2: on iTunes.